Okay, Pasa Mufasa, welcome to the Micopreneur Podcast. I'm your host, Dennis Walker. Today on the pod, we are humbled to host a beloved stalwart of the psychedelic renaissance, who is the founder and director of TAM Integration, as well as the upcoming Psilocybin Summit, which is a global online event running September 16th to 20th that features a phenomenal fungi-centric congress of micropreneurs doing big things in the global village, an event not to be missed, that's for sure. My friends, please give a warm welcome to Daniel Shankin. How can we use these medicines to tap in to the wisdom of the planet in order to live a life that's more in symbiotic alignment? I'm trying to find people who are doing that work and doing that work in a lot of different areas. Daniel and I have been running in concentric circles for some time now, and several of our previous guests here on the pod have implored me to host him, going way back to our very first episode. Today we're exploring the cultural importance of memes in relation to advancing the psychedelic narrative and also their potential to convey a ton of information in a non-linear, all-at-once capacity. We're of course covering the upcoming third annual Psilocybin Summit. You're going to get the 411 on who is presenting and what some of the topics are. We're dipping into music as a vehicle for transportation across dimensions. And you're also going to get the backstory on both of our first ever Psilocybin Mushroom Journeys. Quite a bit more. Buckle in everybody. We are in this together. And I have full confidence in you. So let's get this show on the road. Okay, Pasa Mufasa, Daniel Schenken of TAM Integration and the Psilocybin Summit. Welcome to the Micopreneur Podcast, Daniel. How's it going today? It's, it's awesome. Thanks for having me. Well, I want to kick off today's podcast with a very important question. Usually I save the heavy hitters till later in the program, but this is a special occasion having you on here. Well, I'd love to start off hearing about how one becomes a psychedelic meme dealer. How did you manifest that essential cultural position, and where do you draw your meme inspiration from? Oh, well, you have to just make memes. So you just make them, and then you make a bunch of bad ones until they start getting better. And that's, that's all, I mean, that's all you have to do, right? That's the way, that's the creation game. That's the pe- thing that uh, I think I was inspired. One of the things I realized on a psychedelic journey, I think it was LSD, is that we are participants in this, in this creation. You know, most of us are walking around like kind of on automatic and we're just sort of living the lives that we think we're supposed to live and we're just doing what we're told, um, even though it's our own minds telling us. And when we want to start to make magic, you might have all of, you might have the rabbit and you might have the hat, but the magic's got to come from you. And, you know, I used to teach high school multimedia production, and that's when I first became aware of memes because it was all the rage with the high schoolers. And I was trying to teach them narrative filmmaking and, you know, storytelling, linear storytelling. And memes was really what was commanding everyone's attention. And now, you know, we had Garrett from Unicorn Bags on, and that's quite a large company. And he was mentioning how the memes have been extremely successful corporate advertising for them. So I guess... I missed the boat on that the first time around, and I've been uh, really enjoying your memes that you post and also would like to get into Psychedelic Meme Council myself. What, one of the things that's nice about a meme, I, you said linear storytelling. A meme is not linear storytelling. A meme hits you all at once, and then you have to unpack it 
in your own way, right? So that's one of the really nice things about memes is that it's highly encoded visual information, right? You can really put layers upon layers of meaning into a meme and then a person unpacks it as, as much as they can or, you know, adds their own story to it. So, you know, the fact that it's, it's not just a simple little thing, it can, there can be a lot there. A lot of layers to it. Sure. Yeah, it's like watching a Pixar movie, you know, like the kids are getting one version and then the adults are getting a whole different experience. It's one way to look at it. Right. And then the trippers are getting a whole other one. <laughs> sure. So, you know, before we jump into the psilocybin summit, which is coming up and we're going to unpack that today, I always like to talk about coming out of the psychedelic closet and talk about mushroom experiences and in particular origin stories. First time eating psilocybin mushrooms. Uh, for me, it was a smashing success on all accounts. I've got plenty of friends that tried it in college or thereafter, and they didn't really, it didn't click for them. And, you know, maybe they felt nauseous or uncomfortable. But in my case, I was immediately transfixed, had a great group with me and took just the right amount, about 1.7 grams. And I actually ate them at the San Diego County Fair. And the mushrooms really accentuated the carnivalesque nature of the fair, gave it a real utopian flair. I lost my identity in a house of mirrors. I engaged a giant hamster wheel <laughs> gratuitously, along with similar other attractions. And we ended up seeing Ozo Motley play a phenomenal set. Saw a beautiful sunset, San Diego summer sunset, and had waves of euphoria resonating through my being. So everything clicked for me that first time, and I never looked back. I'd love to hear about your first time taking psilocybin mushrooms. The who, the what, where, when, how many, and did it immediately draw you in, Daniel, or did it take a few visitations to properly draw you in? No, I knew I liked to do. I I knew I liked to do that stuff already. You know, I had been smoking pot for a little bit and you know eaten some acid by the time mushrooms came around. Um, so it was just you know one more one more thing to try. I think three of us split a quarter, maybe. You know, that, sounds, that that probably sounds about right. We did the best we could in, in the woods behind one of our house. It was my house, you know, out by the pool. My folks had, you know, we had a pool and, you know, there was the three of us and we just spent the day by the pool. We had a cassette boombox that I believe for the most part we played Pink Floyd on. Um, Solid choice, as always. Yeah, I mean, it was um, a bit terrifying, a bit wild. Um, it was, we already knew, I think, that there were some points of the trip that you had to hold on for dear life and just go through. I think that was part of, part of it was the fact that it was a bit mad. Like, we we liked, you know, we had been told that there were dark and heavy places and we were okay with that also you would open your eyes we were out you know in there surrounded by greenery and you know this cute pool and and that kind of stuff so we were in a really nice environment and i believe we had a lovely time i don't have a whole ton of details not necessarily because i was super high but it was also at this point more than 30 years ago um yeah, probably like 31, 31 years ago. Um, and that's the story. And it was, um, yeah, it was, it was nice to be in nature. It was nice to be with my friends. And it was nice to have um, the, some intensity to push us along. You know, the nice thing about the intensity is when you come across the other side, you have accomplished something. 
you know, one of the nice things about these experiences is that they are transformational experiences. And when you, that's, it's not a trinket, you know, it's not like a trinket you can buy and then lose, you know, it, it's a, something that has, it's not even something that you can learn and forget. It's a, it's a sense of becoming uh, perhaps more of who you really and truly are. That's beautiful, and I, I would imagine you were around the Mount Tamalpais area, which is one of my favorite areas up there in the North Bay. No, no, I grew up in, in Philly. I grew up in the suburbs of Philly. I didn't move to Mount. I didn't move to Marin until much later. Cool, cool. Okay, so getting a little bit of the the backstory there. So, as mentioned earlier, you're gearing up for the third annual, I believe, third annual psilocybin third annual. summit. And yeah. that's that's done on an online. It's an online global event featuring some of the most recognizable and luminous minds in the Michael world. And I counted a half dozen presenters and panelists who have joined us here on the Micropreneur podcast. Many more we'd love to host. So the lineup of people dropping knowledge at the summit is stacked. And I'd love yes. to hear from you. Who are some of these Micropreneurs? What are some of the topics being presented this year? And why should everybody listening right now? Grab a ticket to the summit and take the ride. Why should you grab it? Because you're, you should grab it because you're tired of listening to people who are just trying to make a bunch of money doing pharmaceuticals, right? And you're tired of listening to um, a bunch of very dry scientists, no matter how well-meaning. So they're very dry scientists that I love and adore. Uh, but I don't want to go to a conference myself and just listen to eight hours of science all day and look at charts and graphs and things like that. I mean, I've done that and that's sometimes fun, but I like, and I certainly don't want to listen to a bunch of people who have, you know, took a microdose one time and then decided that they were going to, you know, make millions of dollars off of venture capitalism, um, off, you know, something that I see as being, you know, sacred and valuable and, you know, uh, potentially here to you know help and heal and transform not only people but communities and the earth right so it's like i'm trying to find people who are doing that work and doing that work in a lot of different areas so you know big names dennis mckenna is coming back for the second year right we're talking about and that's the kind of thing i'm talking to him about the mind of gaia Right? How can we use these medicines to tap in to the wisdom of the planet in order to live a life that's more in symbiotic alignment? Right? Um, Zoe Helene, who is from uh, Cosmic Sister, she does a lot of work with like psychedelic feminism and helps us support and lift up uh, the voices of women from all around the world. And you probably have heard of her husband, Chris Killam. Sure. He's also known as Medicine Hunter. Absolutely. Uh, we have... She's not necessarily strictly in the psychedelic community. A woman named Vanda Nashiva, do you know her? I do. She was at a conference down here in Mexico a bunch of my friends recently went to. So she's actively saving the world, and she has got – she's award-winning. Like, I don't really have any awards, and I'm okay with that. And I don't have any honorary doctorates, but she has, like, six. You know? She's like, like University of Oslo – um, Connecticut College, University of Ontario, just like a worldwide force to be reckoned with for, you know, regenerative culture, saving the planet, decolonization of our food systems and things like that. And that is like a great honor, you know? It's like last year we had Paul, Paul Stamets. He can't make it this year, but he's like, seems like a legitimately great man. 
And like, so does she. She's like a legitimately great person on the worldwide stage that is just, you know, I'm a goofy meditation teacher. You know, I'm like not, I'm not special. You know, she is, but I get to talk to her and that's cool. And you guys get to listen and that's really cool. And we're putting her on a panel with David Bronner from Dr. Bronner's um, and Izzy, who is the director of policy and the counselor. He's one of the he's MAPS lawyer. And if you've ever heard Izzy speak, you know that, you know, he's no slouch either. Um, so then, you know, one of a big favorite in the psilocybin community is Alan Rockefeller. Uh, Alan Rockefeller is a mycologist and a photographer. So if you've ever seen like really beautiful pictures of mushrooms, it might be him. And he's a mainstay on the Shroomery Forum. So it's like, it's very possible that, you know, you, if you've hung out on the Shroomery Forum, you've picked up some wisdom or some know-how um, from Alan. I'm just turning my head to look over it. Um, yeah, we love Alan. He's been on the podcast. Huge fan of his work and his photography. Right. Um, who else do we have that's overlapping? I saw Dar- Darren Springer and Jasper are both on there. They're listed, who are oh, yeah, yeah. both friends of mine. And just was at the Telluride Mushroom Festival with Darren, actually, and a few other people. A lot of fun. Highly recommend people making the pilgrimage out there next year. Simon Ugler, longtime good friend, also former podcast guest. Shout out Simon, Depth Medicine. And yeah. definitely counted one or two others, but it's awesome. You're stacked. And I was going to bring up David Bronner, you know, because he's a very engaging and exciting character. And a lot of people know him. You know, you're you're in conversations in the Myco community and beyond. And inevitably, the name Bronner comes up for myriad reasons. So I think it's so cool mm-hmm. what you're doing. And what I'm trying to do with this podcast mm-hmm. is to really draw out this discourse and give it more more of a nuanced, more of a opportunity to not be siloed into an echo chamber on social media where there's so many dialogues coming out about decriminalization about you know venture capital and the the market cap of these different companies and i think it's great when you can get these characters up on stage and have them really present themselves and explain their thought process rather than what we currently do i think on a mass cultural scale of just rush to conclusions and jump to conclusions about things without giving someone mm-hmm. an opportunity to really present their side of the story and what's going on so i love the right. festival format i love the longer podcast format and i'm very stoked that you're getting the lineup so stacked with so many important people doing great work in this community and beyond right and not only do they get to present but people get to talk to them like there is so this year we, I keep booking too much stuff. So there will be some pre-recorded talks, uh, because you know, legitimately, if you think of a day, you maybe have like six or seven s- slots a day of hour-long talks times four days. You've got twenty-eight talks. Um, that's easy to fill, <laughs> right? And so we are doing some pre-recorded talks, but I like having the live ones so that people can ask questions. And then we work with this really cool platform called Azo, which is an online chat room where everybody gets to kind of walk. This is a little bit of a virtual reality, you know, proto virtual reality thing where people get to walk around and have conversations with each other in a more um, casual format. And quite often the speakers will, after their talks, will go into the Azo room and just have conversations with people. And so you really get to, you know, if you dig what somebody had to say, you can really talk to them with other people from the community and people make friends, you know, people send me pictures 
of people they met at the conferences or online events at like Meow Wolf. Like they'll fly from across the country and like meet at Meow Wolf and then, you know, usually get, get kind of high and then send me pictures. That spot is amazing. So like, if anybody hasn't been to Meow Wolf, there's one in Denver, I think one in Santa Fe and maybe one in Vegas and phenomenal experience. Highly recommend. Yeah, yeah, I did the one in Santa Fe. Uh, I was out there studying Ayurveda. And so we, we hit up Meow Wolf. It was fantastic. Cool. Well, I mean, there's so many reasons to attend this summit. And I just, I think we could list um, we could list them ad nauseum. But right there is a pretty solid elevator pitch for why we should all jump on board and, and take part in the third annual Psilocybin Summit, which is coming up, I believe it's 16th to 20th of September. Does that sound right? 16th to the 20th. Um, I would also like to note that on uh, Monday, the 20th, our post-conference intensives. So we try to have like a deeper dive into things like mushroom cultivation, five hours of mushroom cultivation. Uh, I think um, right after this, I'm going to talk to somebody and we're going to have Laura Dawn is, might be doing a microdosing, five-hour microdosing thing. Uh, I've got a guy from Colombia, Esteban, doing um, chocolate alchemy, how to make medicines with chocolate, how to make psilocybin medicines with chocolate, stuff like that. Um, and also I would like to note that I'm looking at the prices of some of these conferences, some of these like medical and investor conferences, and we have more content and we're less expensive. I don't want to trade on price. It's not necessarily about that, but we tend to be, you know, we're for the people, you know, TAM integration is for the people, man. I've been doing free integration circles for the past four years. You know, never asking anybody for anything. There's a donation basket, but it doesn't matter. What matters is that people come together, they tell their stories, they meet each other, they become the medicine for each other, and they know they're not alone. Um, there's more, they don't have to live in a psychedelic closet, like you were saying. You know, they can have a community where they can truly be themselves. And that's kind of what matters if we're really going to push this movement forward. I talk to people so often who, you know, I, I sometimes talk to people and they're like, I had an experience, the mushrooms want to meet the world, like the mushrooms need to get out to the world. And so I'm going to start an international foundation and I'm going to run it. And it's just like, bro, just get high with some friends. You know, you don't have to do all of this stuff at once. You know, this is, you know, TAM integration, like I said, it's like 30 years in the making, you know, and it started just like in my neighborhood. You know, before we all had to go online. Like, I was just, I had, you know, I had 10 people in my neighborhood, you know, of just, like, people who were figuring it out. And it's kind of grown, and it's kind of grown, and it's kind of grown. And that's kind of how mycelium spreads. And so it's like, just who in your neighborhood can you care for? You know, who in your neighborhood can you trust to let them care for you? I think it's kind of really what it's about. And that's kind of what we're trying to emulate. You know, that sense of, as Mr. Rogers says, we've got to have more of this community care sure and i hope to make it to one of those integration circles soon i believe they're on wednesday nights currently is that correct yeah, it's tomorrow it's tomorrow man stop by awesome i would love to pop in and say what's up and you just touched on something i want to unpack a little more were you doing virtual events before it was cool or did the first psilocybin summit and other tam integration events previously take place in person and how did the drastic restructuring of our world order over the last year and a half impact you as an event producer now, you, you know what, the first one, no, we were doing it before it was cool, before you had to. Um, I had, I don't know if you know 
Mike Margulies from uh, Psychedelic Seminars. Great guy. You should have him on the podcast. Um, and we argue a lot. You know, we're, we're friends. We're close. But, you know, we often point counterpoint, and that's part of the fun of it. And I had been watching him. I had been doing small events at my friend's coffee shop. Like, where there was this coffee shop, and then they had a stage. And, you know, I was doing these little and, and sometimes we would pack in 100 people. Um, and this was kind of just before, this was just like half a year before San Francisco had seven psychedelic events every, every night, you know, every week there would be, you know, like there, there wasn't a lot happening and I was throwing some stuff in person and every once in a while CIS would do one and Mike was doing big ones. He was renting out, um, you know, universities and putting Michael Pollan on stage. Right. And I just had the guys from the local ketamine place, you know, at the tea shop. And it was, it was a good, you know, it was a good compliment, I think. Um, but I was seeing, you know, I was talking to him and just seeing the amount of work he was doing to do this in person. And I was like, you know what, man, like, I think we could just do these online and that would be cool. Like, I, I think that we don't need to do all this fuss you know there's they're building these apps i had i think i had bought i think i got an, an ad on facebook for like something called webinar ninja and they gave me a lifetime subscription for 99 dollars or something and i was like i'm gonna try and do some webinar ninja things and i don't really i don't use that software anymore but it sort of tapped me into we can connect at a greater scale as well Right, because we do want to have impact. We want our work to mean something, and so we started doing. We were like, I was like, I'm going to do the summit online, because also it's not everybody can just fly to Anarchapulco. I know those folks. Oh yeah. You know, I was like, yeah, I, I love those folks. I can't just go to Anarchapulco and then to go off to Prague for whatever. It's like, I'm, you know, I, I have, a, I have a baby and a wife. I just would rather be at home half the time. But um, so we were doing it before. Very cool. And you just mentioned a tea house. Was that the Om Shanti Tea House by chance in San Francisco? They used to have a lot of events there. I remember. It was Key Tea. Key Tea. So and it was attached to Open Secret Books, um, which was really cool because our stage was a stage that like Ramdas mm. spoke on and Alan Watts spoke on back in the day. And so it's sort of an honor to, you know, it's always, you know, it, you know how our minds go and we're, we're psychedelically inclined. We make meaning, you know, so it's on some level, it's like a big deal to be able to like sit where Alan sure. Watts at. <clears throat> Funny enough, I graduated from the University of San Francisco, was there from 2007 to 2012. And at that point, mm -hmm. it was kind of strange in that there was like a lot of legacy left over from that Hate Street Summer of Love. Like I was at the 40th an anniversary yeah. of the Summer of Love, but there wasn't. A, I, saw you I there. was there. Yeah, I was that guy. All right. So there wasn't a lot of like, at least for younger people like myself coming to the city, these ongoing open events and infrastructure laid out. Like now there's TAM integration circles. There's seven psychedelic events a night, as you mentioned. But it felt for a long time like we were just kind of hacking through the jungle with a machete. And we saw this huge potential, but we didn't have a community around it. And now that's totally changed. So I think it's awesome that there's, you know, Portland Psychedelic Society. And like San Diego just popped up with a psychedelic society. But, you know, for, for so long, like you were mentioning, TAM integration is 
30 years in the making. And this podcast, in a lot of ways, is about 15 years in the making. There just was no climate like there is now where people were able to openly discuss this stuff outside of the, you know, smoking bowls in the panhandle or uh, hanging out in Golden Gate Park on Hippie Hill and whatnot. So it's really crazy now to see this whole infrastructure and a global community sprouting up and be able to connect with people in London and in Sydney and places like that. So I got a really important question for you. I want to know what is the best Grateful Dead album and why is it Working Man's Dead? What? You mean just the you mean the country one? Yeah, it's a good sound. I mean I love that album, 1970. I love that sound. Why is Blues for Allah popping into my head? You know, Blues for Allah is like really creative and divergent. You know, that it, it goes into some really interesting places and, you know, explores um, explores something different, right? Which I, I think is probably inspired by their time in Egypt, right? When they played live at the pyramids and you know, they made so much noise that like Bedouins came in from the from the desert to see what was happening. You know, I love the Bedouin culture. I actually used to live in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, and I would do falconry out in the desert with Bedouins and and would eat dates. Prophet Muhammad says you're supposed to eat seven dates a day to protect you from poison and witchcraft. And I still do that to this day. And drinking coffee. I love the simple Bedouin lifestyle above and beyond. But yes, absolutely. I've seen the dead in concert. I came along a little bit after the Grateful Dead era with Jerry, but still, you know, that that legacy lives on and there's an XM satellite radio station of Grateful Dead and I love to listen to it on road trips because they play a lot of the live cuts like from Berlin, Christmas in Berlin and this and that and the other. So any anybody with XM highly recommend checking out the Grateful Dead channel. So as far as the dead goes, a little piece of the dead trivia. So Mark Karen was the guitarist for a little bit. I played How Sweet It Is for my wife at our wedding. And I got to study with Mark Karen because, you know, he's a Marin guy. And he gives guitar lessons if you're nice. Yeah, so that was really, that was really kind of a, a special moment in time. You know, the Grateful Dead makes great music for psychedelics, by the way. <laughs> we're, you know, I know that we're all. To, I know that we're all listening to East Forest and stuff, but um, and that's good too. And that's where that's where I'm headed with this. That's where I'm headed with this. So, jokes aside, you know, we're we're laughing over here talking about the Dead, great band, huge fan base. Obviously, music is an integral part of a mushroom journey for me and for a lot of people. It helps to activate and illuminate the mushrooms in my experience and to calibrate and orientate yes. me at various points throughout the process, like when things inevitably do get heavy. Uh, I'm always on the lookout for hauntingly beautiful music that can help to direct close-eyed visuals and move me down the great cosmic river like I'm little baby Moses in a mycelial basket. Some of my favorite artists to listen to, Daniel, on Journeys, traditionally, are Radiohead. Absolutely love Radiohead's legacy. Blake Mills, Daniel Lenoir, who is an insanely gifted producer, and plays a lot of pedal steel guitar and nobody's heard of Daniel Lenoir except you. Dude, and me. I've met him at his house in LA and he is an awesome dude. I've been very fortunate to connect with him a few times. I absolutely love his solo body of work. Everybody who has heard of him thinks of him as a producer for U2 and Bob Dylan and people like that. But man, his solo music and that pedal steel guitar is a church and a suitcase, as he calls it. Actually, just two weeks ago, I saw the Flaming Lips live on a party dose of mushrooms. Ecstatic experience. Can't recommend the Flaming Lips live experience enough. I, 
I saw them play New Year's at the Warfield once. Amazing. Oh, you know what? I remember that lineup. There was some other, I would remember the names. You know, that's not really my genre, but they were good too. But, you know, the Flaming Lips put on quite a show. They really do put on a big time show. It's like a ceremony and all the, I mean, one of my dearest friends and my wife and I were there and we all ate about two grams of mushrooms with some chocolate that we get from down here in Chiapas. And it was ecstatic. We all left there with a abundant, radiant glow. And that's what it should be. You know, it was a really beautiful experience. I know you're a great fan of the Grateful Dead. You mentioned Pink Floyd, Daniel Lenoir. I'd love to hear about what is your preferred musical or sound vehicle for transporting yourself across dimensions look like? I think it depends on the medicine. Um, with mushrooms, I like things very, very quiet. Uh, I don't find that I need a lot of sound. Um, like I, I mentioned East Forest. I think is really nice. Uh, I can be caught playing like the Gayatri mantra for like three hours, you know, or things like Kirtan. I do, you know, my practice, my integration came out of be here now. Like there was nobody, there was no, I had never heard the word integration, didn't know it existed and I needed it. And one of the big kids thrust be here now into my hands and was like big kid. He was probably 27. You know, and he was like, here, kid, read this. You'll be OK. And so I started doing yoga practice and I found that yoga practice really helped me stabilize the experience in my body. It wasn't so much as like understanding this or understanding that, but it was like I wanted to stay connected to the love, you know, and it's like, how do I stay connected to the love? It's like, well, you do yoga practice and you chant. And so I started doing that and I'm very excited, you know, that there is you know, an outdoor kirtan next weekend. I haven't been to like a group chant in a while. Um, so I will, and that whole tradition has become very meaningful to me. Things like ketamine, I just listen to um, Dr. Eric's playlists. So Eric Seidnick, who is my partner in the integration circles, he co-facilitates them with me and he runs Polaris Insight in the Castro. And the guy has a gift for ketamine playlists. He listens to a lot of like electronic music and a lot of like, I don't know the names of the genres, you know, of electronic music and a lot of like his other stuff is like too fast for me and too intense, but his ketamine playlists are gorgeous. And then, you know, for things like LSD, it's like, yeah, just put on the Grateful Dead for me. You know, just give me just, just hey, Google, play dicks, picks, whatever. <laughs> and just let it let it happen and that's kind of where i'm at these days i love it i uh you mentioned kirtan i am a big fan of an environment like that and i went on sort of a sound journey out in palm springs a couple of years ago at some hot springs out there and that really flipped the script for me because i grew up and music was such an integral part of these psychedelic experiences but then i reached a point where i'd like plateaued and it's like i was playing the same things over and over and i, I was like am i really breaking new ground here or am i just like you know f recycling these sort of tropes that are happening and being in a sound bath was really awesome to be able to have someone playing the crystal bowls and i think there was a didgeridoo at points and you know there's a place in san francisco called the audium if you're familiar 
where they've got like a hundred plus speakers positioned at different points throughout the room. And I just really encourage people because I think sound is such an integral part of a ceremony. Like you go to an indigenous ceremony, if you've been in a traditional ayahuasca ceremony or a velada with mushrooms, etc., there's always a sound component. There's always a rattle, there's a drum, there's chanting. And I really think that takes it to the next level for a million different reasons. And I know our mutual friend, Michelle Janikian, recently hosted a panel at one of your last events um, talking about what is psychedelic music because there's so many diverse points of entry for what people like to listen to. You just mentioned how it depends on the substance, how you might have a totally different playlist set up or an idea for an LSD experience as you would for psilocybin or for ketamine, etc. And I actually referred a friend who was on that panel, which is pretty awesome. Alan, shout out Alan Lilienthal from Tulengua. So I'm always on the lookout for more music and it's a great conversation piece because I think it reflects a lot of personality once you hear what people are into. And then also, if you're in a group setting, there can sometimes be some contention there where somebody wants to play a certain sound and somebody else is not feeling it. And I, you know, there's not a lot of research that goes into this. Maybe there is that I'm unaware of, but just something I always like to talk about and bring up. Yeah. I mean, that's a great, you just took me back, you know, you took me back to like my first journey. So I'm thinking back in the day, I used to get high with these punk rockers in high school because, and I was sort of like this, you know, little hippie kid, uh, because you got high with the people who got high. You didn't always have like, you know, a choice. You didn't always have a bunch of deadheads. Sometimes you had to listen, you know, hang out with the people who wanted to play my life with a thrill kill cult. And there would be that contention over what were we going to listen to and for how long. And I remember one time we were in somebody's basement and there was this, again, an older guy, um, might've been 26. You know, it might have been 24 because we were the in big high kid. School. He was a big kid. And he made us listen to Prince. And it was perfect. It was like, OK, you know, we could all surrender to Prince. The purple one. Bow down before the purple one. R.I.P. Yeah, that that's solid. That's a good one right there. I was playing in a band in San Francisco, like every young person in San Francisco. And I got this idea where on smaller doses of mushrooms, I felt pretty comfortable and I ended up playing at the student cafe, playing a live set on about a half eighth of mushrooms. And contrary to my, my previously held belief that it might be difficult or overwhelming and therefore I should do it in a low stakes environment with people I know, I felt so comfortable. I felt so dialed in and I started scaling that and like ended up performing at a bunch of different venues for like fairly sizable audiences. And I always felt like that was you know, an, an extra added dimension where you can really lose yourself in spontaneity and you can kind of be aware of the whole thing that's happening, but also push a little bit, push your boundaries a little bit. And I always felt that factored in really well. And now there's a lot of research going into how smaller doses of psilocybin or various psychedelics can help people who are actively in those positions, be they, you know, um, in the lab even or writing or on stage and there's a lot of experience lived experience i think to suggest that yeah. they can give us an edge can give you an edge well, in a situation I, I, like that i think that you are were wise to start small and scale up you know there's that to talk about state dependent memory that you know if you study you know with a blue light on you should take the test with a blue light on or whatever um and there's also that common wisdom that we all know that if you're on psychedelics and you think you can fly, um, start from the take off from the ground. 
right? Don't take off from the roof. Take off from the grave. If you can fly, you'll be able to fly from the ground. And so that's kind of like you start playing in front of your friends at the, at the, caf at the coffee shop or the cafeteria, and you grow and you grow and you grow. So you kind of know the way things go. You know, what's the rush? I think that's probably good advice in general for people starting psychedelics. We mentioned this briefly when you jumped on before we started the recording, uh, talking about social media and storytelling and these new generations that are on here and that are looking to this. And I had a really interesting experience two nights ago. Some people have been, quite a few people actually, have been egging me on or, or persuading me to join TikTok. And they're like, TikTok is an exposure machine. That's where it's at. And of course, I'm a little bit in that big kid generation, as we just referred to it now, where I'm like, dude, I already got an Instagram. I got a YouTube. You know, I've got Facebook. Do I really need to be on this new medium? Man, how old you are? I am uh, 32 years old. So. Okay. Yeah. So TikTok, you know, my high school students were on TikTok and I was like, ah, oh, this is not for me. Well, the, you know, I got one and the other night I posted something after a party, just like without even thinking about it, I posted a little video clip, seven seconds of our chocolate bars that we're selling called Myco Day. And it, I looked the next morning and it's got, you know, 45,000 views, uh, 1200 likes, all these comments. And then a bunch of people have crossed over to Instagram and to my other platforms through that. And I'm like, huh, wow. there's really something here. And now I think it's interesting that my inbox is full of 16 year olds and 17 year olds asking me questions about mushrooms. I'm like, well, I certainly didn't court that. <laughs> it's not what I'm looking for here. But uh, what I wanted to talk about specifically in relation to this is about the importance of storytelling and of people owning their stories and owning the psychedelic narrative and having empathetic and intelligent and reasonable people talk about their experiences. Uh, and, you know, just to divert from that for a second, there was an incident that happened last week in Miami you might have heard of. I don't of. want to talk about it. I don't. Okay, we don't have to talk about it. I just want to know. <laughs> no, can't you know, even. Uh, what I, think, I want to say is the thing about reasonable people is sometimes a high barrier, you know, is like in, in, inter, in, in integration circles, um, you know, we would like to think that, you know, reasonable people show up, but also unreasonable people need it too, you know, and not everybody is just like, everybody sort of wakes up where they wake up and, you know, the, some people come to this. You know, there's this, a lot of talk about like the betterment of well people, you know, as a psychedelic thing, as a reason to do psychedelics. But then we also have people who are bipolar and they're depressed and they have PTSD and they've been through some shit and they're not always, um, you know, like congenial and charismatic and easy to be around and smooth. Um, you know, they're, they're tough and they're wily and they have, you know, their personalities or whatever they are. Mm -hmm. Um, they still need a place to go. So I just, I just felt the need to say that, you know, when we, and then, you know, hopefully like a little bit, and then this is a cool thing about a community. You know, I think it becomes a community when everybody is supporting everybody. Like, it's not just like, so I teach sometimes, you know, and I teach about meditation for yoga and stuff like that. And that's top down. And that's just me being like, this is what you do. And this is why you do it. Um, but the integration circles are cool because like everybody's there for everybody. It's not about me. And that's super awesome. There's one more name that pops up that's going to be presenting, and that's Colin Wells of Veterans Walk and Talk. Huge fan yeah. of that organization. I just got to hang out with them on Friday and did a sweat lodge with our mutual friend Shane, 
also doing great work. And that's a big link up between Native Americans, the Morongo Band, indigenous native led healing ceremonies and our veteran brothers and sisters and everyone else. So that that was super cool to hang out with them. But I noticed he's going to be talking. And I just think that that's one of those groups you're mentioning. Uh, who, these are people who need a place to go and they direly are in need of effective mental tools to heal and mm-hmm. to achieve prosperity and, and wholeness in their lives. Yeah, I mean, there are so many organizations where you have to be on like your best behavior. You know, it's like you almost see like cults and I don't know, just there. there's some organizations where they claim to be helping people out. You know, they claim to be for the people, but it's really, it's, it's, you've got to be really typical. You've got to be normative, you know, to get along in a particular organization. And, and, um, that, that's played out, I guess, you know, it's like that, that doesn't help us open our hearts. Like if we're going to judge somebody who shows up because they're a little bit different, it's, it's just, it's, you, you've got more work to do. That was one of my exit cues for San Francisco is when all of these exciting artistic class weirdos and freaks started leaving town because they started getting priced out and they were replaced by and large with a class of people who to me did not have exercise the same degree of freakiness or, you know, uh, there was just a whole different vibe when I left in 2012. And when I go back now and I see, and obviously other people will have different perspectives, but I really feel like there was a, a sea change that happened between 2007 and 2012 or so in terms of the types of people that were welcome in San Francisco and the types of events that were happening. And that might just be a broader cultural phenomenon at large, not just limited to San Francisco, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, uh, we had to get out too, you know, we, we left, we left as well last year. Um, and it's not necessarily because of society. It was just, it didn't seem safe. You know, it's like everything's on fire. The power was going out all the time. Uh, it was expensive. It just didn't seem like any place. It didn't seem like a safe place to raise a kid or fun. Like, you know, I'm sure it's like really fun to be there if you're a tech millionaire. You know, it's probably a great place to raise your kid if you're, you know, making seven figures a year. So, uh, but, you know, it's, it's, we're, we're probably better off in the country. Yeah, man, I love the North Bay. Marin, I used to hang out up there in Mill Valley and Sausalito. I actually used to hang out quite a bit on a houseboat previously owned by Alan Watts. And it's currently owned, at least last I heard, by this eccentric tech mogul who made a bunch of money in VR in the 80s. And they would have all these impromptu functions and events. And it was just a really eye-opening experience as a 20-year-old to be surrounded by, by these people who had a lot of cultural and social capital and also a heavy interest in psychedelics and were able and willing to engage us and sit us down at the table and have conversations about John Lilly and isolation tanks and ketamine and research into dolphin consciousness and things like this. Really fascinating stuff. So I hope those conversations are still happening there and accessible to everyone. You know, we've touched on basically everything I wanted to dive into today. And I feel like before we can wrap up, let's just revisit the psilocybin summit again, because that is coming up. Can we revisit Falcons and travel? Happily so. I would love to do that. And then we'll do Psilocybin Summit because you talked about falconry. Uh, what do you know about eagles? Very little. I know that there's a ton in Alaska 
and I've seen them there, but what can you tell us? Drop some intel on eagle culture. Well, there in Mongolia, there are it's a big uh, nomadic population, and they hunt on horseback with eagles, probably much like the Bedouins hunt on horseback with falcons. And so every year there's something called the Eagle Festival. I've heard of it, Golden Eagle Festival, I think. And it's it's my it's one of my bucket list things. And so maybe I'm, what I'm saying is maybe you want to come. Dude, I'm so into it. Let's go, man. I, Mongolia is very high on my list of places I want to go. So a little backstory for me. I grew up hosting exchange students from all over the world. I never had oh, wow. a Mongolian exchange student, but I had Kyrgyzstanian exchange students, many from the former Soviet Union, Turkmenistan. And later, my family started hosting shorter-term exchange program volunteers who were sponsored by the U.S. State Department. So it's called the Citizens Diplomacy Council. And we had some Mongolians, I believe some judges, federal judges from Mongolia. So that's always been kind of a, a play for me to be able to travel is to write messages to these folks and be like, hey, I'm going to be in your area. I'm coming out to Crimea. I'm coming out to Patagonia. Dude, I, I, had, I actually, yeah, I went to Crimea with a good friend of mine and was there in Ukraine in 2012 for the Euro Cup championship between Spain and Italy. And I knew nothing about Crimea, but this was literally six months before it got re-annexed to Russia. And I was just like, I thought we were going to go ride horses down there. And somehow that was a mistranslation. There were no horses, but we got taken straight to a catamaran on the Black Sea. And then mm-hmm. this guy who spoke little to no English just drove my friend and I around, sailed us around on a catar- catamaran for two days, just hitting little ports. And we'd take a Zodiac into the ports, go drink a bunch of vodka and eat like caviar and stuff like that. And then Zodiac back out to the boat. It was a phenomenal experience. And it was, again, one of those things where you just look at each other like how did this happen like we thought we were gonna ride horses i didn't even know they were coastal in crimea and six months later the whole place was uh, a war zone so things change quickly you know things change quickly i would love to go to that festival with you let's put that on the calendar just like put it out there for for something like let's give my kid like a couple of years you know i want to take my kid and he's two so i want to you know have him have a couple of yeah he needs some horseback riding lessons and he's not ready for those And you can stay with nomadic reindeer herders out there. They even have various Airbnb experiences where you get picked up in a certain area and then they take you with the reindeer herders out to stay in yurts. And you make yak cheese and you drink vodka and you live the life uh, on the Mongolian steppe. So we got a lot. I lived lived in in a Mongolian yurt for a year in Northern California. Fantastic. Fantastic. I'm also a big fan of these. If... What you got there? Amanitas. Oh, okay. Well, Which we can't wrap up just yet because I'd love to hear about that. That's something I have an active interest in. In the town I live in in Mexico, we are surrounded by Amanitas. And I go foraging. I found them. Um, but there's so much mythology behind them. And I've never actually personally met someone or had a discussion who's been able to tell me about their Amanita experience. So maybe this is a good time. I go small. I don't do large doses. I can put you in touch with, so Amanita Dreamer um, is a YouTube channel run by this woman named Dreamer who is a big Amanita advocate. You know, everything I, I know I learned from her. She'll be speaking at the summit. She'll be one of the few non-psilocybin mushroom people there um, talking about Amanitas. And 
So I was instructed actually by somebody else to start with a piece the size of my thumbnail and to do it at night, do it in a quiet place where you can meditate and let it sort of take you inward gently. And I find that very small doses before bed um, make me have, make me drift off to sleep very easily, um, have wild dreams that are usually very good. And I wake up feeling very, very, very refreshed. You know, it works on a, it doesn't work on the serotonin system. It works on the GABA system, uh, which is often where we have to deal with things like anxiety. And so it's like a really great anti-anxiety agent. Um, the things that happen at higher doses, I'm not familiar with yet. I'm not a heroic user. I'm a small, I'm a small dose, you know, dream worker, I suppose. That's probably uh -huh. the best place to start for anything. It's great, great to start small. Yeah, I mean, I'm, you know, at this point, I'm, I'm a little old and less um, brave, you know, and also, you know, I've got to get up at six in the morning and play with trains. Living the dream, Daniel. Hanging out, running integration circles, organizing psilocybin summits, playing with trains in the early AM hours, man. That's beautiful. <laughs> playing, with, playing with trains and, you know, feeding cherry tomatoes to the baby. That's fantastic. Well, I hope to get out there and visit you at some point. I spend a fair amount of time in Northern California. Haven't been in about oh, a year. See, I don't live. I'm, I don't, I'm not there anymore. Oh, you're not there at all. Okay. Yeah, I live in the Berkshires. I live in, in very western Massachusetts, very close to the Hudson Valley and very close to New York. That's a beautiful so, area. The Hudson Valley is stunning. I've always loved it. And it quite, is stunning. Let me friends. look out the window real quick. Oh, yeah, there's a misty mountain. Life's good. Life's good. Life's good. All right, well, how about we just get a quick snapshot? You know, we touched on Psilocybin Summit, which will absolutely be linking the event to the podcast and episode notes. And uh, I will do what I can to pop in myself. I would love to see everyone and get in those chat rooms and, you know, really get the discourse going and contribute, et cetera. But what, what is... Uh, you might, do you want to, like, host one of the talks? Do you want to be, like... Do you want to Absolutely. Be like, do I would love do to do, do that. Do you do for one of the talks or something? I would love to do that, Daniel. Absolutely. Okay, so we'll figure that out on the on the back end. Maybe we'll, we'll stick you with one of the guys you already are friendly with. That would be amazing. You know, in whatever capacity or context, could, I'd be happy to be there. Simon. You could take Simon off my hands. Dude. <laughs> I love Simon, man. He, him and I have had a very close relationship since our freshman year at the University of San Francisco. And he was just down here in Mexico with me for a couple weeks and we went to Palenque, which is out in the jungle and found some waterfalls and initiated a beautiful locally grown psilocybin mushroom psychedelic voyage at these mm -hmm. incredible cascading waterfalls. And it just reaffirmed my love and appreciation for him and the extraordinary work that he's doing with internal family systems and at Myco meditation. So yeah, I would love to do that. Um, fantastic. Cool, cool. So, you know, that's the kind of thing. That's, that's how things happen at the Psilocybin Summit. You know, you, you make a friend, you decide you want to keep doing some stuff with them. And, you know, the Psilocybin Summit's a place to do that. 
And I can't emphasize enough to people listening how important it is to just jump in and how accepting and open people can be. And I just recently had that experience at Telluride, which is a venerable mushroom festival. It's in its 41st year. And there's all these huge names and people who have been doing this for a long time. And I was a little gun shy rolling into I was a little shy, I'll say, rolling into town. And then people were so welcoming and embracing. And like, as soon as I got into town, I saw William Padilla Brown, who's a very well-known figure in the Myco community and beyond. And he he straight up came up to me and was like, que pasa Mufasa, how's it going? And I feel like that's a very similar vibe to what you're going to get at the Psilocybin Summit, where people are not going to be super exclusive or, you know, holier than thou, but it's really a decentralized kind of networking, community-based program and i can't emphasize enough how cool and how important it can be to really dive in to start to make these connections and friendships and to learn from each other yeah i mean the one you know the one caveat i would say to that is you know if you're new and you're probably not i mean you're probably not if you've made it this far through the podcast or maybe you are if you show up to the psilocybin summit and you want to make friends don't ask people for drugs (laughs) <laughs> just be just be cool and hang out and talk about the concepts and learn about people for who they are like let's not assume that the the entire world is your dealer and you know i have compassion for the fact that these are rare substances and that their access is difficult but it's a really good way to turn off a stranger is to just ask them for drugs right off the bat or to that, try to sell them drugs right off the bat. Don't buy drugs from strangers on the internet, kids. That is so important. That is so important to hear. And yes, I, I would always recommend, specifically if someone's interested in psilocybin mushrooms, like join your mycologic, mycology society, mycological society. Almost every city has a chapter. You're not mm-hmm. going to get a lot of psychedelic knowledge up front, but you're going to meet people who are passionate about mycology. And by an extension of that, inevitably... You know, you're going to meet people who cultivate psychedelic mushrooms. So that's a great place to start or your psychedelic society. Many large cities have them. And, you know, just go in and just listen and, you know, make a friend and chat. And I think that's a great and legitimate way to start and get on get on your way. But most people listening this far in the podcast probably grow their own mushrooms already. One of my clients recently said to me, how many people do you think are growing mushrooms in Boston? <laughs> where where they live and i was like i don't know not i was like not a lot she's like huh yeah i mean it's 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 like ken kesey said we ain't many you know um he went on he was this was his speech after um his son died and he spoke he did spoken word at a grateful dead show um you can you can find it online um, archive.net. I forget what, when and where. It's probably it. I feel like it was the Oakland Coliseum, but I don't know. Um, he was very furious with God, it seemed like. Um, and he said, we ain't many. At any given time, there are more dumb people than there are smart people. We ain't many. Shout out Ken Kesey. I didn't know that he collaborated with the dead. Makes a lot of sense. Uh, well, that another... was the early, that was the acid tests back in the day, right? It's like the Grateful Dead were the house band for Ken Kesey's acid tests. That's right. That was, yeah, okay. That's uh, early psychedelic legacy. That's probably right after they were the Warlocks. Was that their original band name, I believe? The Warlocks, something like something that? Something like that, yeah. And then, you know, the security was the Hells Angels. That's right. And Altamont, I think, or that was the Stones. But yeah, I remember the, reading about those days. We that used to happen much later. Yeah, that happened much later. 
There was uh, quite a few of their collaborators that remained around the Bay Area for years, and we used to. I bumped into Phil Lesh a few times in Marin, and uh, um, John Perry Barlow. He used to be one of our neighbors. He was another Grateful Dead lyricist who lived. I down went by house the- hunting with him. He's a real character. R.I.P. He was also the director of Electronic Frontier Foundation, as you well know. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah he was. He was great. Um, I was looking for housing in the Bay Area when I had first moved there, and my friend said. And she was messing with me a little bit because she knew she was like, my friend John is also, you know, looking for a roommate, and a new place to live. You should come and meet him. And I go over and there's like all of these young, beautiful women who let me into this, you know, Marin mansion. And it's freaking John Perry Barlow sitting there. And so we went and looked at a couple of houses. It was fun. Super tight. Yeah. Totally yeah. underrated, but that's kind of how a lot of the subcultures are these days. It's like there's these, you know, another great example of a totally criminally underrated psychedelic artist, Tommy Hall. He was an original member of the 13th Floor Elevators, which, mm-hmm. you know, they arguably invented psychedelic rock. He used to live in the Tenderloin in government housing, and he'd like, you know, hang out on the street corner, and you would think he was just kind of another, you know, oh, man, who's this person who has, you know, wandered aimlessly away with their life? But it's like, this guy was one of the pinnacles of the entire psychedelic rock movement. Now he's just posted up in the Tenderloin with his record collection. I miss yeah, those days. Go to, you would go to, um, like, a the brew the brew pub or something on like a tuesday night and there would be this pickup band of guys like that just shredding on stage for free you know and it was yeah the bass player from the 13th floor elevators and the guy who you know stevie winwood's you know guitar player you know it's like all of these random you know amazing musicians just getting together and shredding that one of my favorites was um robin sylvester who was one of the engineers for like Abbey Road Studios and was like a session player, like, you know, worked with the Beatles. And he's just kind of this gentle little soul. He looked a little bit like a Muppet, (laughs) gentle little soul, just like playing the bass in a way that you, the bass just needed to be played. It's just really, really a great spot for music. Love it. And I miss live music. You know, it's one of those things that once it's shut down, you're like, Shit, man, I miss so many great artists just because of what what reason? Because I didn't want to shell out 60 bucks to see one of my all, you know, Ravi Shankar. He used to live in San Diego. I had plenty of chances to see Ravi Shankar. And now I'm just so anyways, that's why I saw the Flaming Lips the other night. You know, now we can't take opportunities for granted. If there's something you want to do, if there's an individual or group or an experience that inspires you, like the TAM, psilocybin, the psilocybin summit, don't wait, man. You never know what the future holds. So now's the chance to get in and get in, make hay while the sun is shining, as they say. I couldn't have said it better myself. Cool. Well, it's been a real pleasure having you on the Micropreneur podcast. Daniel, we're looking forward to the summit. Yes. Okay, everybody out there, take care of one another. Love one another. Dennis, thank you so, so much. There's so much to cover in the mushroom universe and so many micropreneurs leveraging the infinite potential of fungi to create a more ecologically balanced, inclusive, and equitable world for all of us mischievous little monkeys. I am completely stoked that you've chosen to spend some of your hard-earned time in our little corner of the Mycoverse. Hop on the gram, say what's up, at Mycopreneur Podcast. That's the handle. Don't get it twisted. We've got the full suite of social media up and running. Twitter, Mycopreneur. Got the YouTubes dialed in, Mycopreneur. Drop us a line. Tell your grandma and your kooky uncle. Tell your wife and your kids. If you're a Mycopreneur yourself, 
you want to hop on the pod, by all means, willkommen, bienvenidos, welcome. Don't be a stranger. Let us know your thoughts on this episode, and also let us know what you want to hear in future episodes. This is a team effort. Thanks for stopping by the Micopreneur Podcast. Have a lovely day. We'll see you back here next week.